0: Father, thank You for being with us through Your Spirit. Uh, Lord, that You have not left us as orphans, but You have come to us and are present with us uh, through Your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, that we would draw near to You uh, by Your Spirit uh, in Your Word even now. Lord, I pray that uh, You would uh, lift Jesus before our eyes and um, You would inflame our hearts uh, with Your beauty. We pray these things in Your name. Amen. Uh, This week I came across a a wild story, uh, a really wild story of uh, an art uh, heist that happened in New York City about almost 10 years ago. And um, it happened at the Nodler Gallery. Uh, The Nodler Gallery was taken for 80 million dollars. 80 million dollars. They got scammed. And this was a sophisticated art gallery. This wasn't a mom and pop shop. It had been around for 165 years. When all this went down, and the way it happened was from 1995 until about 2010, uh, there was a woman named Glafira Rosales. Glafira Rosales claimed that uh, she knew a collector in Mexico uh, who had a, a really uh, wide-ranging collection—a uh, lot of originals from um, from these modern abstract expressionists, these famous kind of uh, artists. Uh, their names are Mark Rothko, and Robert Motherwell, and Jackson Pollock. But it wasn't true. <laughs> what had happened is that there was, she had, Glyphira Rosales and some others had gotten together with a, a, a Chinese street painter in Manhattan. And the street painter took these originals and he made these impostors, uh, and then he took va- um, dust from his vacuum cleaner and smeared it on his impostors to make them uh, look like you know they'd been in somebody's basement or just found. And he was pretty good at it because he fooled the, sophistic- the sophisticated art dealer. And it worked like a charm. He sold one for 8.3 million, another for 17 million, and a whole bunch of other ones to get to 80. And experts began to see that something was badly off. So they reported this, and Rosales was questioned, and she cooperated with the officials. She pleaded guilty uh, for fraud, for money laundering, and for tax evasion. And because she cooperated, she only served three months in jail. I couldn't believe it. $80 million, and you only got three months? She must have had a good lawyer. Um, But the others involved in the scam, they've not served any time. Uh, they, ha- they all have taken refuge in other countries. So how did this gallery, the Nodler Gallery, how, how did they get fooled so badly? Was it as easy as they just should have followed uh, some tips? I mean, I found these tips just with an old Google search, that if you don't want to get duped, you read up and do your research. You look for the artist's signature. You check to see if there's any brush bristles that have been left on the painting. You make sure it doesn't smell like fresh paint. Pretty common sense. You have it appraised. You look for an authenticity certificate. But this is a Nolard ga- gallery. Been around for 165 years. Surely, those, the, they knew these tips. And these imposters don't even seem to be that skillful. So it takes a high level of discernment. Now, I hope you've got some original artwork in your home. I do. And the artists' names are Audrey Eden and Brooks Wimhoff. I likely won't be in the enviable position of having well-known original art pieces hanging in my home, but that doesn't mean that I don't need the skill of discernment in my life. See, as Christians, we need to be on point for spotting the work of the evil one, because he doesn't come to us and say, Hi, I'm Satan, and I'd really like to ruin your life. Will you agree to my plan? That's not what Satan does. But he's deceptive, and it requires a discernment to detect him. And that's what our passage will help us with tonight. Uh, We're just going to read, I know we've printed the whole chapter, we're just going to read through verse 14. It's in your bulletin, page 8. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates... Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Haggafiram in the plain of Ono. Let's pause there. Uh, So if you've been with us these last several weeks, uh, those names should sound familiar to you. Sanballat, he was there in chapter 2. He was there again in chapter 4. Geshem was there in chapter 4. Tobiah was there in 2-4. And now again in verse 6. So uh, as this wall is getting built, Sanballat, Geshem, Tobiah, are just keep coming after Nehemiah. And now that things are almost done, now that the wall's built, and now that the gates just have to be uh, built and then hung, they're making one last run at this. All right. Verse 2. Uh, yeah, come and let us meet. We did the, and, I, and I sent messengers to them, I being Nehemiah. He's the narrator here. I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambal for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So now he's got a second scheme going here. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind." for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. It's kind of this knee-jerk prayer. I don't think this was Nehemiah's time of prayer at a specific time during the day. I think all this is going on. He said, man, what else I supposed to do than pray? We know that to be true of Nehemiah. All right, verse 10. This is scheme number three. Scheme number three. Now, when I went into the house of Shemiah, the son of Deliah, Son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Verse 11, But I said, Should such a man as I run away, and that man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The word of the Lord. Alright, so let's, if you've not been with us these last few weeks when we've been in Nehemiah, let me just recap it quickly for you. Um, you, We're in the Old Testament, and the Jews uh, have been, uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed, the walls have been torn down, the temple has been burned, and it it lies in ruins, and all the Jews have been taken from Jerusalem, they've been taken to Babylon, uh, where they are serving as slaves. They're there for about 70 years And Babylon gets taken over by Persia, and the king of Persia is Cyrus. And Cyrus issues a decree uh, that all the Jews can go back home if they want to. So, some of them do go back home. And they go back home, and the first thing they do is they rebuild the temple. They get the temple rebuilt, but some Jews are still left uh, in what was Babylon now is Persia. And one of those Jews is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a high-ranking servant in the king's house. He's the cupbearer. Anything, to the, anything the king is going uh, to eat or drink, Nehemiah's got to taste first. Not to see if it's good or not, just to see if it's poisoned or not. So this has to be a highly trustworthy person. Nehemiah is this person. Nehemiah also is this Jew. He's, still, he's concerned about the people who have gone back. So he, talk, he finds some Jews who have been back in Jerusalem and are now back in Susa where he lives. And says, hey, how are my brothers and sisters doing back home? How are all of them? And they said, "Well, well, things are okay. I mean, the temple's there, but the walls are still in rubble." And this breaks his heart. He knows that they're vulnerable. I mean, in the in ancient Near East, if your walls are rubble, it would be like you putting in your email signature your checking account number. You are very vulnerable to having all your money taken from you if that is your practice. I hope it's not, by the way. And that's the same way if you're a city in the ancient Near East. So he, he he's broken-hearted. He he knows that they could be crushed at any point. So. Uh, he, he is burdened by the Lord. That maybe that there's this need, and maybe God's calling him to fulfill this need. So he does. He go, he, but he's got to be released. He goes to the king, King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, and King Artaxerxes releases him and says, I'm going to pay for the rebuilding of the walls. Nehemiah didn't see that coming. So Artaxerxes sends him with, uh, with a military escort to go back to Jerusalem to build the walls. He gets back there, he appraises his situation, he gets his plan together, he meets with the Jews, he gives them their plan, the Jews accept the plan, and then he delegates them in the rebuilding. The rebuilding begins to happen. And then you've got these haters in chapter 4, Samballot and Geshem and Tobiah, and they start lobbing these verbal jabs at them, telling them how feeble they are. That doesn't really work, so they start making physical threats to them. That really doesn't really work either. Nehemiah and the Jews, they stay on course. Trouble comes from the outside. Last week we saw the trouble comes from the inside. That because these people weren't all Masons, it's not like they, they went to the, the labor union and found the, the Masons and said, hey, we want to hire all these Masons to rebuild the wall. No. What, they, what Nehemiah had to do was go recruit farmers. That's all there really was. So he recruits these farmers, they leave their lands, they come, they start rebuilding the wall, but their land is left wide open. And not only that, it's famine time. So they're in debt, so they've got to mortgage their property to the affluent, their fellow, afflu- their fellow Jews who are affluent. Those affluent Jews charge them interest. They get in such a bad financial spot that they've got to sell their kids as child slaves. And so now these wall builders, they come to Nehemiah and they say, hey, here's the situation, the situation I just told you about. And Nehemiah goes, all right, I'm going to go to the affluent. And he does, and the affluent say, all right, great, we'll give give you your money back. uh, And we're going to give you your land back. Problem solved. So there was a problem from the outside, threat from the outside, threat from the inside. Now we get one last lob from the Troublers on the outside. That's what we have here. In verse 6. And when we get to verse 6, the wall's almost complete. All that's left are these gates. And so they come up with these three schemes, this one last shot. The first scheme, let's let's walk through them. The first scheme is there in verses 1 to 4. Sam goes to Nehemiah and he says, Hey, meet me halfway, halfway in Ono. Ono lied right between uh, equidistant from Samaria and Jerusalem. But the, the request is pretty generic. Do you see it? It just asks for a meeting. It didn't say whether the meeting was going to be this like perpetual peace treaty. It doesn't say whether the meeting was going to be a declaration of war. But it's, it's really hard to know as a reader what their motive was. But it wasn't hard for Nehemiah to know what their motive was. He knew they were just trying to get him alone so they could take him out. Because if they could take him out, then God's people will be discouraged the gates aren't going to be rebuilt, and Jerusalem's going to remain weak and subservient to the nation's agendas around them. But did you notice Nehemiah's response? When he responds back to Sam Baal's request, he says, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Why leave it and come down to you? At least he uses the word great. He's not puffing himself up, he means important. It's important work. He's going to have to spend one day traveling up there, one day in meetings, and one day traveling back. Three days. It only takes 52 days to build the wall. So three days is significant. He doesn't want to delay its completion. And Sam Ballot is persistent. He comes back four times, and Nehemiah gives him the same response every single time. But Sam Ballot's not going to give up so easily. He's going to come up with a, a, a different scheme. He's not going to ask a fifth time. And so he does, what he does is he sends this unsealed letter. This is the second one. He goes from having a generic request to, for a meeting to scaring Nehemiah into a meeting. So he makes up this rumor. He makes up the rumor that Nehemiah wants to become king. But Nehemiah doesn't want to become king. He's never said anything like this. And an open letter means that lots of people are going to read it between the time it leaves Sambalat's hand until it gets in Nehemiah's hand. He's hoping that this rumor goes viral. He's really, really hoping that this rumor gets back to Artaxerxes. Because Artaxerxes, the Persian king, is one of the most powerful people in the world. And even if the gates get rebuilt, the walls already rebuilt, Persia's army could easily crush the walls and crush the gates in Jerusalem. And he does a pretty good job. It scares him enough that he prays in verse 9. But now, oh my God, strengthen my hands. Second scheme. Let's look at the third one. Third one's verses 10 to 14. St. Alex still won't give it. He won't give in so easy. He's got one more round left in him. And he leaves his most crafty work for this last scheme. In his craftiness, he recruits this invalid, Shemiah. Shammai is an in invalid Jew. That's who his undercover cooperative is going to be for this mission. And Shammai tells Nehemiah that people are coming for him. It's the proverbial they. You know when you use the they when you just mean someone more powerful than you? Usually you mean the government, they, or your boss, or management, they. That's the they that they're using here. We don't know for sure that this is Artaxerxes. We don't know f- or whether this is Sanballat. I think it's Artaxerxes. I think Shemaiah knows that that's what's really going to get at Nehemiah's fear. He's not pulling this out of thin air. It's a real thing. But Nehemiah sees through his plan too. See, laymen like Nehemiah. Nehemiah's not a priest. He's not a king. He's not a prophet. He's really at this point just a general contractor. And laymen aren't permitted to go into the temple. The only people who can go in the temple are the priests and the Levites. That's what's been prescribed in God's law. Shemiah's acting like a prophet here, and Nehemiah knows that no real Jewish prophet would ever ask him to do something that violated the will of God. And so that's how he sees through Shemaiah's smooth request. So there you've got it. Nehemiah nails it at every single point. He's full of discernment. He's got this perseverance. But can I be honest and tell you what I would have done if I were Nehemiah's shoes? Let's walk through each one. Scheme one. Sam Bell asked him to meet, and oh no, if I were Nehemiah, I would have been like, you know what, it's just going to take three or four days. We're already way ahead of schedule. These guys might not be so bad after all. You you know, I'm pretty charismatic. I can win these guys over. Maybe we can partner together and I can build this political alliance with these neighboring nations. And we can we can we, we can partner together in such a way that we can become a powerful world force. That's what I would have thought. Second scheme, I would have gladly put down my trowel smooth and mortar on those bricks if somebody was coming after my reputation with the kind of force that they did in the second scheme. Remember, this is an open letter. This is the one that's got the lies laced all throughout it that, that the Jews want to rise up and rebel against Persia. This is the one that's got the rumors that Nehemiah wants to become king. Nehemiah's never said such a thing. And when people are spreading false rumors about you, you want to go absolutely ballistic. That's what I would have done on the same ballot. I've said, let's go find that joker. I'm going to take him out. I would have gone to my fellow Jews who had read this letter. I would want to know every single person who had read that letter before it hit my hand if I were Nehemiah, and I'd want to defend myself ad nauseum with them. See, if you're like me, you just can't handle your reputation taking a hit. So we swiftly moved our defense. We're touchy about how people see us, we dread cold shoulders. We hate nasty emails. We don't want our opportunities to be limited. It's nearly impossible for us to keep our mouths shut and just keep working at what God's called us to do. And that's what Nehemiah did. Isn't that true for you? Do do you spend more time crafting arguments against your detractors than plowing ahead with your calling? Do, do, Do you spend more time carefully weaving your image, your brand, than grinding away at the real work? what I would have done if I were Nehemiah. Scheme two. Scheme three. You got this invalid. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sucker. I, I can feel pity in a heartbeat. I would have come up on this invalid as Nehemiah and I would have entertained it greatly. Meanwhile, I would have been freaking out on the inside that Artaxerxes was going to come get me. And so, this false rumor from, from Shemaiah through Sam Ballot would have just confirmed all my fears. I would have said, You're right. The temple's going to be safe. I, I, I know it's against God's law to get in there, but my safety is more important than my obedience. Surely God's going to understand and make an exception in this case. Does not that sound familiar? We're paralyzed by fear. It, it, it distracts us from the tasks at hand. So, so what should we do with Nehemiah chapter 6? Is the message effectively be like Nehemiah? Stay concentrated? Push aside distractions? Obey God's law? Don't be afraid? Well, if that's the message, brothers and sisters, we're finished. Because we're going to fall into fear. We would rather defend our reputations than keep working. We're going to be naive. We're going to be driven by the allure of power. So if you trust in your ability to be like Nehemiah, you're going to fall. You're going to fall just like Adam and Eve fell in the garden. See, they too were tested, not by Sambal, but by the serpent. They had one prohibition, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they failed. But the serpent would come again. The serpent came at Adam and Eve. I believe the serpent came through Ballad and Geshem and Tobiah. But the serpent came again. He came in Matthew chapter 4, the passage we heard earlier. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus faced three tests, just like Nehemiah. Jesus was in the desert. He wasn't in the garden like Adam and Eve. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And in his first test, Satan comes and he dares him to turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds using God's word, just like Nehemiah did in the third scheme. Nehemiah knew he couldn't go into the temple. Well, Jesus knew God's word and he refutes Satan and he doesn't give in to that first test. Second test. The second test was for Jesus to jump off the top of the temple so that angels would save him. Really what Satan's doing is he's using flattery on him. He's trying to show Jesus, man, look, the, the God loves you so much that he can just command the angels and they'll take care of you. Don't you want to know what that's like? Flattery. Well, that's what Shemaiah is doing. He's saying you're so important that people are coming after you. He's stroking his ego. But Jesus refuses. Third test, Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and says that if you'll bow down and worship me, you can have everything that you see. It's the same thing that Nehemiah was tempted with and going to, oh no, more power. But Jesus stays strong. He commands Satan not to leave Neither Jesus' temptation nor Nehemiah 6 are primarily lessons to teach us about how to deal with temptation. I mean, that's the way I wanted to take the passion, this passage. I wanted to, man, I'm tempted all the time with all manner of things. I, give me some tips here. I need something practical. But Nehemiah 6 nor Matthew 4 are primarily lessons to teach us how to deal with temptation. If they were, then the Bible would be about you. But you're not the point of the Bible, and I'm not either. Now you matter, but you're not the point. See, the Bible is first and foremost the story about Jesus. So both Matthew 4 and Nehemiah 6 exist so that we might see and treasure Jesus. See, in Jesus' temptation, Matthew 4, he remains perfectly righteous. Now, Nehemiah is exemplary in many ways in our passage, but we know from previous passages that he's a sinner. Nehemiah chapter 1, he repents. Nehemiah chapter 5, he's one of the affluent in Jerusalem who's been, who's, mortgaged out, who's been taking mortgage property and charging interest, and he claims that he's one of them. See, Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah because he never sinned. He was the one faithful man. And that qualifies him. That qualifies him to be our substitute. It qualifies him to grant us his righteousness so that we might stand before a holy Lord dressed in a clean robe instead of the rags that we have made for ourselves. So when, not if, but when you fail, when you give in to temptation, you are not relying on your past record of standing up to it. But you're relying on the perfect track record of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And, brothers and sisters, to the degree that you see Jesus in this way will be the degree to which you withstand Satan's schemes. You can't do this on your own, but Jesus did. And because He did, now you can. So, how are you being tempted these days? How's Satan getting the best of you? Is he telling you that being faithful with your sexuality is a fruitless endeavor, so you might as well just give in? Is he tempting you to take a promotion just to make more money, even though it doesn't fit within the rest of your life? It doesn't promote flourishing and rest for you? Is he tempting you to lose hope in your marriage, to lose hope in your parenting because nothing seems to work? Is he tempting you to give in to your addiction because sobriety is just too hard? See, part of what makes this so hard is that it requires so much discernment. I mean, think about what Nehemiah was tempted with, right? Think about his three schemes. He was tempted with power, with his reputation, and then with his safety. None of those are wrong, right? Well, neither are Jesus's. Think about Jesus's three temptations. He's tempted with food knowledge and power. Not wrong either. I just wish temptation came at me flaming red. Don't you? I mean, I wish, I wish temptation was confined to, to these kinds of things, like I'm walking down the street and a wad of cash falls out of the person's pocket in front of me and I'm tempted with whether to keep it or give it back to them. I wish it was that clear. I I wish it was as simple as uh, being tempted sexually was just about propositions from people who you're not married to. But it's not. A lot more complicated than that, isn't it? I, I wish it was confined to physical assault of someone who cheers for the wrong team rather than just someone I don't really care for. I mean, that would be really easy. I mean, think about this. And this is silly, but I I think it illustrates the point. I mean, let's just say eating pizza was a sin. I'm really glad it's not. But if it were, here's how it would work. Satan wouldn't come to you with a spider sandwich and try to convince you that it's going to taste like pizza. He's way, 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 way better at that. Satan's going to tempt you with things that appear good. So we need spiritual discernment. We need to be able to spot the counterfeit. See, brother and sister, Jesus is going to equip you with this discernment. He's going to give you eyes to see the work of the evil one. As long as we fix our eyes on the beauty of his person and his work.